Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Today, we're joined by my friend, Colleen Murphy, Professor of Molecular Biology at Princeton University. She's also director of the Lewis Sigler Institute for Integrative Genomics and the director of the Paul F. Glenn Laboratories for Aging Research. Her career in the biology of aging spans over more than two decades, beginning with a postdoctoral fellowship in the laboratory of Cynthia Kenyon at UCSF, at a time and place that some consider one of the origin points of the modern field of aging. She's a prolific scientist and author of many papers, describing studies in which she uses the worm C. elegans, among other models, to understand the fundamental mechanisms underlying aging and longevity. However, it's another kind of authorship that led me to invite her on the show. Dr. Murphy has a book coming out that I think will be of great interest to the listeners to this show. It's entitled, How We Age, The Science of Longevity. It's going to be published by Princeton University Press with an official release date of November 14th, and it is already available for pre-order at online retailers. Based on my sneak peek at the contents, I've already purchased mine. Colleen, thank you for being here. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you having me on. First of all, congratulations on the book. Thanks. <laughs> I'm glad to be done with it. It was a kind of a long slog. <laughs> you know, I once worked on a book project and, and I, I stopped it because I realized what I wanted was to have written a book, not to actually write a book. <laughs> so, I mean, double congratulations for both conceiving of the idea and then following through on it all the way from inception to publication. Thank you very much. So I just want to get the conversation off, you know, just a real simple question for you to get started. How do we age? <laughs> very simple, just like that. Um, <laughs> it's a huge question with a complex answer that despite the enormous progress it has been made over the time that we've known each other, it hasn't been fully revealed. So like, what was your approach to tackling the problem? I think that the the tools that we have now are actually better than when I started in the field. They were just starting to get rolling then. And so by combining genetics, which we, I think we had a good hand on that, and then adding things like transcriptomics, metabolomics, things like that, that we have a much better understanding of exactly what changes with age. But I really have to emphasize, you know, you mentioned UCSF and the sort of the starting point for aging studies. I can't overemphasize how important it is to have these mutants that increase lifespan, because from that, you can really sort out what are the important things that allow an animal to live longer and healthier. And it turns out it's not by slowing everything. It's really just a key set of factors that have to change that keep an animal living longer. And so that understanding kind of opened the door and then adding all these new tools that we currently have, especially in genomics, have allowed us to understand what changes with age better. And so that is, you know, we can really peer into how things change, but also understand which things are critical for maybe helping an animal live longer than it might without any intervention. Was that premise kind of the launching point for you as you started this book? Absolutely. So, I mean, because there's lots of things that do change, but launching the, the research or launching the book, those are two probably different things. <laughs> well, actually, my next question was going to merge into that very question, which is how does your own work and the topic of your research inform your choices about what to include in a book like this? As I mentioned in the forward to the book, a lot of this was based on not on my own lab's research, but on the work that we were teaching. I was teaching in my class on aging. I taught a class on basically the molecular genetics and regulation of aging, taught to basically seniors at Princeton University. 
And so I couldn't just focus on the work that my lab does, but also make it much broader and try to understand how the whole field changes, how the whole field, I guess, has it attacked aging. But, you know, of course, I'm very partial to the questions that we've asked because it's really what we care most about, right? So we've used C. elegans not just to study how long an animal can live, which I think, you know, worms have been a great tool for finding those, the answers to those questions, but really seeing what, how far can we push it? And so my lab is, we started asking the question, can worms learn and remember? And if they do, does that change with age? And that turns out that's all true. They can learn, they can remember, and that declines with age. And then we use that as an entry point into asking, can we extend that ability with age? And then, you know, this all culminated in our recent work where we've shown that using the same exact genetic pathways in C. elegans and in mice, we were able to improve the memory of two-year-old mice. So that's about the equivalent of a 70 to 80-year-old person. So I'm pretty excited about these, you know, pretty large leaps that we took in C. elegans and how we were able to extend that work based just on the genetics and genomics, what we understood, and took it all the way to mammals. So you based the book largely on the curriculum of a course you taught to advanced undergraduates. That's correct. Wow. So that raises a question that I was going to ask actually later in the interview, which is, it sounds therefore like you're targeting an audience who has some biological sophistication. You know, these are, these are uh, finally your undergrads at a, at a major university, but not necessarily at specialists in the biology of aging. No, absolutely true. In fact, like, <laughs> I really want people who are, you know, there's a lot of great books on aging and longevity that are aimed at a lay audience. And I think that's wonderful. And I think that a lot of the people who are pretty well-versed in those books might be able to pick this up and actually delve deeper into the actual, you know, some of the actual studies, trying to find out what is the data that informed the work that they've already read about. And so, yeah, I don't think you have to be an expert in any one of those things. And in fact, probably experts would like maybe nitpick with things that I miss, which is totally fair. But um, yeah, I think that people have a reasonable science background, not like huge, but you know, undergraduate level should be able to pick this up and, and learn something from it. And even if they've read some of the high-profile books on this general topic that have come out over the last few years, you're saying that this is actually a great place to pick the topic up again. Now that you've learned that, now that you understand the basics and the sort of broad state of play, here's a little bit more of a deep dive into some of these topics. That's right, Chris. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. And also some of the history, right? Sometimes, you know, people are limited. I, you can't write a, you know, 3,000 long page book. So everybody picks and chooses what the stories that they want to present in a book. and I think as a result, you know, everyone's going to tell the story from a different angle, their own angle. And for me, it was really important to not only present the work from the studies that actually showed these findings. And in a lot of cases, those were from invertebrate studies like C. elegans and, and Drosophila. So that's an important point. But also because I think that the role of women in science has kind of been often underappreciated. And in the longevity field, that's a big mistake because some of the really major players, people make amazing discoveries were women. And so we really, I need to make sure that we make that point clear as well. I've commented on that frequently. And I, you know, I rotated in Cynthia's lab, although I didn't end up doing my PhD in it. I worked for Judy Campisi as a postdoc. Like my experience in the biology of aging has very much been one in which women are prominent in the field and drove, I mean, Liz Blackburn, and you have to incorporate telomerase and any story about the evolution of how we understand aging anyway. I think that it's a, a wonderful example of how the women in science story is just the science story. Exactly. That's right. There's nothing contrived about it at all. And I think that it's, uh, I think it's wonderful that 
a woman professor is writing a book that, you know, is consciously trying to bring that forward. I think it'll be exciting for our readers to hear your perspective on, on that issue, among many others. So one issue that you deal with very early in the book, in the opening chapter, you delve into the ethics and economics of studying aging, and you come right out and ask, is it right to study aging? So why did you start there? Given, you know, we just talked about the science and your, your, your background as a researcher in the field. Why is that topic essential for a discussion about aging? I think it's critical because on the one hand, it would be easy to just assume that anyone who, you know, wants to learn something about longevity should think it's obvious, but it's really not, right? So it's really obvious if you were to say, like, is it right to study cancer? And it absolutely is, or childhood diseases. So that's easy to justify no matter what. I think those of us who have talked about aging, not just in scientific settings, but in more like public settings may have at least occasionally encounter someone who brings up the point that, uh, first of all, aging is natural, right? There are a lot of people who just take it as like an inevitable change. And up until this point, of course, that's been true. So why would people worry about it if you can't do anything about it? The second thing is sort of the, the ethical part, right? So there's a misunderstanding, I think, often that if you, uh, a couple of different misunderstandings. One is that if you increase lifespan, that you'll necessarily cause overpopulation. Mm -hmm. And so while I am sensitive to that concern, I don't think that the end of life is really where we're going to cause those kinds of problems. Another question that people have raised is, well, aren't you just going to stretch out the bad part of life, right? And so I don't know, Chris, you probably have seen these movies that Cynthia had, but basically if you have look at like a daft two worm, so that animal has a doubled lifespan, it's doubling its healthy lifespan. And so that's kind of what we all want. We don't want to stretch out the, you know, frail part of our life. We want to stretch out the healthy part of our life. And so when you think of it in those terms, then it's less problematic. And also when you consider that not only are you healthier, you, you know, the economic concerns kind of go away if you're able to stretch out healthy rather than the infirm part of life. And so I think it's something that we have to address right away because we can't assume that our readers or our audience really think the same way about this. And there just may be points they have not thought about before. So I wanted to bring it up right away. Right. And engage them on those topics and say, listen, I don't want you to have this in the back of your mind the entire time that you're reading this book. I want you to understand that what we're talking about here is extending healthy lifespan, not extending the decrepitude at the end of life. And indeed, as you said, in, I want to say almost every example, just in case I'm forgetting something, but when we extend lifespan through these interventions we've learned about over the last 30 years in experimental animals, we invariably extend healthy life. There's no extension of decrepitude. If anything, we see something called compressed morbidity. That is to say, even in situations where the lifespan isn't increased that much, the beginning of decline is proportionally quite late in life. So if anything, the longer lived animals have a shorter period of decrepitude. That's certainly true for the insulin signaling pathway, and we hope with some of the TOR interventions. There are a few. It's, it's not a lot. For example, the mitochondrial mutants and C. elegans, those are actually pretty crappy. And so, <laughs> so like, it's worth asking. And, you know, we and others have actually addressed this question. All these mutants are the same. They're not all the same. And so it's really important to make the distinction between these different longevity pathways. But I do think by the time it works its way all the way up from, you know, worms to mice, you're really, like, narrowing down onto the the interventions or the pathways that do extend healthy lifespan. But it's important to make that distinction and actually ask the question. It is. And it's so critical. And actually, BioAge is doing some research about attitudes about aging. And we, we haven't launched this yet. And I, I, I don't want to introduce spoilers for something that we're going to make some hay out of. But 
One of the things that we've found is that health span, that is to say the amount of time that you are free of disease, is much more important to people psychologically than lifespan. As it should be. So it's very important, as it should be. Very important to emphasize this point. Okay, so I understand why you wanted to start there before you took your readers into the science. And having dispatched that key issue, you then go on with a couple of chapters about how aging is measured and how it's studied. Why did you decide to introduce the scientific part of the book in that way? Well, I feel like we need to know what we're talking about, right? Before you launch into all the, you know, I get into the weeds in the later parts of the book about the real nitty gritty of the the different pathways and what it does in the cells and things. And so I wanted people to understand how we even measure something because it's important. Those metrics are important. You can't just only look at how long something lives. You have to look at how well it lives. And there's lots of good metrics and they're very, you know, we can do it in different ways in different organisms. So I think it's good to make sure everybody understands what we're measuring before we launch into like how we change those metrics, right? I agree with you. And I think another thing that's really important about this choice of topic at this point in your book's story is, especially when one is addressing a non-specialist audience or an audience that has not done independent research in a scientific field, is as scientists, we learn how to know things. We learn what it means to convince ourselves of a new idea based on experimental information. But for people who've never done that for a living, it's not totally obvious how that happens. So I, I think it is very important to talk about you know, before saying, how do we age, define the thing aging, define how these measurements are made and talk about what I guess, you know, to use a fancy word, the epistemology, how it is that we know things about things like aging. And then you can go ahead and talk about what we know, but you know, the reader will have a sense of how it is that we come to understand these things. And I think they're going to have a deeper appreciation of the stuff that you tell them later in the book as a result. I hope so. And you, we want to also let them know that we think about these things. We just don't uh, <laughs> do some, some random things and then just declare victory. Oh, my goodness. The portrayal of scientists in, like, popular fiction. <laughs> you know, these people just, like, in white coats, invariably white coats, right? Walking around a lab with lots of complicated-looking machinery, just running roughshod over issues of ethics, issues of, in many cases, doing the proper controls, and just kind of doing stuff irrespective of what the justification is, what the intellectual mission is. I think that one thing we could we could do a lot better as scientists is communicate to a lot of different stakeholders what exactly it is we're doing <laughs> all day in the laboratory and beyond. So I, again, I think it's really great that you, you engage with that topic earlier in the book. The other thing I want to address early on is this idea that, you know, we're not talking about life expectancy, which is really affected by a lot of other factors that are beyond, you know, the studies that we do in our labs, right? So we have, you know, there's socioeconomic effects on lifespan that we have to be aware of. And those are not necessarily the things that we're studying in a, in, you know, a molecular lab. And so I wanted to make sure that readers know that we understand the difference between all of those things. Right. And that those things are also important. There's a massive inequity in healthcare in the United States and elsewhere in the world. And one doesn't want to be insensitive to the fact that uh, somebody might say, hey, I'm a member of a population that has a 15-year shorter lifespan than everyone else and a 20-year shorter health span. Absolutely. So, you know, you over there in the tower talking about maximum lifespan, maybe that money could be better spent focusing on decreasing some of the inequities in our culture. And I think it's important to at least acknowledge that we're aware of those problems as well. That's right. After this sort of early quarter of the book, you, you dive deep into a lot of different scientific issues. And, and I would say you do it in a really nice, accessible way based on my 
my review of the text so far. <laughs> Thank you. And these are issues ranging from how our mitochondria work and the role of epigenetics in aging. But one thing that I noticed is that a topic you return to again and again is reproduction and that sex and reproduction are mentioned in the titles of four chapters and in the text of more than half of the chapters in the book. So why is this such an important theme? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, some of the issues are pertinent to women and have been largely ignored by the aging field. You know, things that I got interested in probably like 20 some years ago where there was no funding even for it. Now the field is coming around and that's becoming, it's noted that we should study things like reproductive aging. And I'm happy about that, but it's taken the field a long time. And the other big issue is that, of course, evolutionarily, we have a lot of discussions about longevity, the connection between longevity and reproduction, right? And that there's this idea that's pretty pervasive that there must be a trade-off. And maybe in the larger scheme of things, that is true. But until you actually do the experiments and really ask the right question, uh, it seems like that would be true, except that in the individuals, that's not so necessarily true. And so we have to figure out what are the differences between what's happening in, in an individual and what's happening in a population? And is it really a trade-off? Or is it more that when we look at these mutants that extend lifespan, they are anticipating, their cells are anticipating a difference, and that has effects on reproduction. I see. So I feel like this emphasis on reproduction and mating and sex, they're all things that we in the aging field, we kind of ignored and kind of that people brush over, but they're really critical for these pathways, these regulatory pathways. And so it matters for the organisms as well. I feel like the emphasis on reproduction and longevity in the context of human aging, I feel like the tide is turning in the right direction over recent years. Do you agree? Yeah, finally. And what do you think is responsible for that? I think more women being in <laughs> consigned. No, seriously. Like if you look who's driving a lot of these initiatives, right? I'm laughing because it's such a simple solution. <laughs> just, just be inclusive. Just make science inclusive. Absolutely. And, you know, it will, it will reform itself. That's wonderful. And there's actually a lot of great startups that are focusing on various aspects of reproductive longevity, as well as some great academic efforts in that direction. And I think that's going to be a really exciting subfield to watch. And it's been argued by, by others who've been on this show, like Jen Garrison, who points out that, you know, the ovary is a great model for just studying aging because you have this great endpoint of whether or not it has senesced, which is, you know, it either ovulates or does not. And we can monitor, in some ways, it's a premature aging model. So you can actually do have a premature aging model in the context of an intact human body that's otherwise aging at a normal rate. And I think there's a potential not just for the science of longevity to inform how we think about reproduction, but for the science of reproductive longevity to inform how we think about aging more broadly. Absolutely. And in fact, a lot of the interventions that we're looking at actually have an impact first in reproduction before you ever see a readout with longevity. So I think that, that it's a good way to look at it. And of course, you know, there's that famous paper from Tom Pearls where he showed that women who had been able to reproduce, you know, have kids really late, also tended to live longer. And so there's a connection already between that. So it's almost like, like reproduction as a biomarker of future longevity. Interesting. That's awesome. So sex and reproduction aside, what are your favorite things about the book? Like, what are the, <laughs> the stories that you like the most? What are the anecdotes you find yourself telling the most often? Just like share your favorite things with us. That is hard to pick, which is, I think, why the book ended up being so long. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I love it. Not talking about my own work, because I could talk about my own work for like 70 hours straight. But one of my favorite papers is from Scott Pletcher's lab. 
And they figured out that when flies are exposed, like there's a plexiglass divider between flies that are alive and flies that are dead, it stresses out the live fly so much that it kills them early. Oh my God. Basically, I'm kind of, I'm skipping over a lot of details, but like this idea that (laughs) you could see, that's the, um, I see dead flies chapter. That's I saw the chapter time. That's for my, but like it's really cool that we have all these sensory inputs that actually inform our cells about how long we're going to live. And while it may you know be this weird thing that either worms or flies do, often what we find are there are correlations or you know basically molecular correlates in mammals as well. And so the question is, we have to just figure out like which ones actually play a role and how big is it, right? But anyway, that's one of the stories I, I really like or the all the stuff about, you know, parabiosis and the early vampire stuff. You know, <laughs> like when when people wrote about that, va- you know, that was a thing. Like when the first vampire stories were written soon after the idea of blood transfusions really were developed. Yeah. So, you know, in Dracula, the main character received something like four blood transfusions. Now, that was before they were aware of this incompatibility that actually would probably kill a person. But that's how it got, you know, these popular ideas. It's like, you know, some of the early science fiction work. But now when you think about things like parabiosis, there really are factors that go from in young animals, plasma, you know, work from people like Salvieta showing that they can actually influence older animals. So those are really cool potential interventions as well. You know, those are just kind of fun to think about. And of course, people's imaginations kind of spin out of control, but, you know, there's real science behind a lot of these ideas. The thing about the flies observing dead flies and having basically a psychological response to it, like a, a, a stress response, it really blows my mind. It's like, have you seen the Barbie movie? Yes. Okay, you know that scene where like everyone's having a great time in <laughs> Barbie land and all of a sudden the main Barbie says, she's thinking about death. Do you guys ever think about death? <laughs> and that's kind of how I imagine these flies. Just like, wait a second, what's over there? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but it also tells us that flies maybe have a richer psychological internal life than we think of them as having. Because, I mean, there's many ways, I suppose, that observing the death of a member of your own species could cause stress. But, I mean, at least one of them implies that there's a lot more going on in those little brains than we usually think there is. And I have to say, I would think so. That's absolutely true for flies. In fact, actually, they don't, you mentioned species, they don't care if they see another species that doesn't look like them die. So they're kind of... Really? <laughs> they're very selfish. Oh, yeah. In the Pletcher paper, they did that They did that control? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like a different species that looks different, they don't care about that. That doesn't stress them out. And also if they die in a way that like if they, they flash froze them. So like if they don't look dead, it doesn't stress them out. It's only... So it's like a warning signal. They look like they died of a pathogen or something. But I would say that C. elegans is way smarter than we give them credit for as well. Okay. What's your what's your favorite example of that? Well, first of all, they have long-term and short-term memories, which I think most people don't know, right? So they can smell, like you can train them to pair an odor with food, like trip, typical Pavlovian training, and they'll remember it even overnight. So this connection, but they're smart enough that if you don't track them on your choice plate the next day when you're doing the experiment, they'll learn that it's not there and run away again. I don't want to anthropomorphize too much, but the reason they can do that is because they use the same molecular mechanisms that we use to like actively forget things that is not useful information. So you can you study analogies of cognitive decline and even neurodegeneration in worms using this observation as a launching point? 
Absolutely. So we have done that for the past 15 years. And that's what's led us to figure out like a potential intervention in mammals. And do you talk about this in the book? I do a little bit. Yeah. In chapter 14. Fantastic. I think I might have finished writing that before we did all the work that we just published on that. So yeah, that's the other part of this book. You know, like there's so much interesting work that's always getting done. And the fear is that, you know, as soon as you put it down in book form, it's already, you know, there's more stuff to write. So. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I think if somebody wanted to be really cynical, they could say, oh, haven't there been other books about aging? Like, do we really need another one? It's like some of those books came out in like 2018 and like so much has happened in the intervening time. That's right. It's a fast moving field. And we really need to, yeah, there's, there's new stuff. And as you said, with appropriate humility, like there are things that have happened since you published your book and that's how science is. It moves forward and it's not standing still. Are there topics that are not in the book because you just ran out of space that you would have liked to talk about? Yeah, I keep thinking about that because someday I'm going to have to update this. Well, first of all, like there's some things I missed in the early parts with like, why do we age and, you know, things that kill us that are not necessary longevity address those. So I, I really want to add some stuff about gun violence in my next one, because I think that we in the United States, that's actually a factor that we should think about more. And as far as science goes, I need to add a lot more, I think, some some point about immunology and aging, because that is a field that's moved really fast. And I think that I haven't done it proper credit in this book. So I would add more things about that in my future, future versions. Yeah. On the good side, that would allow you to cover this really important area in aging research. But on the downside, you'd have to learn immunology. <laughs> Don't we all, though? Here's a related but, but different question. What's not in the book? Because it shouldn't be in the book, as in maybe another author would have put it in your book, but you made a principal decision not to talk about something that that others in the world think of as essential to this topic. As I mentioned in the somewhere in the introduction, one of the early chapters or something, I don't talk about what I eat or what exercise I do, because I feel like that is not really uh, as a, as from a scientific point of view, it's an N of one. Right. And so also I feel like it's a little bit scary, a little, maybe it's a lot of hubris involved with that because I don't know how long I'm going to live. My <laughs> C. elegant studies haven't shown me everything. And I'd be a little bit worried about like getting hit by a bus as soon as I said that. So <laughs> I, I didn't, didn't include any of those things. Oh, you mean the highly scientific principle of don't jinx it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think the other thing that's also really important is like, we're not gurus. That's right. And the CEO of BioAge often gets asked by journalists in the course of a battery of questions over an interview, like what she personally does to extend her life. And, and I know that Kristen doesn't, doesn't really care for those questions because, you know, in part, because as you say, it's end of one in part, because she's not a health guru, right? Like our work at BioAge and, and other companies in the longevity biotech space is to do rigorous work that's going to help everybody live longer, healthier lives, not to, I don't want to pick on anyone, but, you know, take half a million dollars worth of supplements a year yeah. so that we can, quote unquote, reverse our aging process. So, yeah, I think I think it's great to omit that. And I'm, I'm glad that you did. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was getting up on my soapbox a little bit. No, I'm on the same soapbox, so I had to, like, not nudge each other off of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to crown your soapbox, Colleen. We have two adjacent soapboxes. Yes. All right, we're going to get philosophical now. Okay. As we we go into our kind of the final part of our interview. What's the point? Like what's the point of studying aging? Is it is it merely to understand a central mystery of life that for most organisms life is finite 
Or is it justified, in your opinion, by the applications to human health? So when I started this, one of the things that appealed to me, like when I started my postdoc, was the idea that you could um, study aging for a variety of reasons. And it philosophically is very interesting. But I think as I get older, first of all, I, <laughs> I don't want to apply this stuff to myself. So as you said, N of one. But I really do feel like if we could apply these things that could broadly help a lot of people, it might be more efficient than attacking a lot of diseases one by one. You know, there's this issue of comorbidity. So people, you know, they tend to get sick and then they have a lot of things wrong with them. And some of these aging interventions have the potential to slow down a lot of these simultaneously. And so I'm excited about that just as the idea of you could possibly have a really large impact on health span of a lot of people if you figure this out. So I think that's what mostly motivates me. There's always the sort of, you know, cool things about studying science, like little neat discoveries, but I'm finding that that actually is kind of a, a sides, you know, and a diff different part of my lab works on those kinds of things, and they're not necessarily aging related. What are the biggest challenges of writing about this field? We talked about some above, but the biggest challenge, obviously, is you have to become an expert in biology of aging. But assuming that you've already done that, from a communication standpoint, when you were in the writing process, what was the hardest thing about writing the book? I think it's easy to forget when you're writing for a not like semi-lay audience, a very educated lay audience, how little jargon you can use, right? Like we are so deep in the science all the time that we, you and I could have entire conversations where very few real words would be used <laughs> if we wanted to, right? And so trying to make sure that we translate at, in a way to like at least summarize in understandable language is very important. So, and it's really hard from my perspective to know if I've done that effectively. I have to, you know, hopefully I have, but I'm sure that there's some parts where like I'm in the weeds too much. And so hopefully we won't lose readers there. They'll come back out and say, okay, I didn't get that particular aspect, but like I get the general message. And if that is enough, then I, you know, I feel like at least somewhat hopeful that the readers will stay along with me. But I think that's the hard part. And plus this, I covered about almost a thousand papers in this. And I also want, you know, it's hard to give people enough credit for all the work they've done. I mean, this is a lot of work by a lot of different scientists. And inevitably, there's going to be something I neglected to mention or someone I neglected to credit. And I do feel bad about that. So, and maybe I'll correct it in a future version <laughs> if I can figure it out. You, you can always update it in the future. I, I found that paralyzing when I was working on the book project that I, that I discontinued. The idea that, you know, I would be putting myself out there as an expert on a topic and that I was sure that I was going to miss somebody and I would feel really bad. And I would, you know, potentially be embarrassed by it or it would decrease the credibility of the rest of the book. So yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. I was talking to somebody about this sort of a, a life coach and they said, you know, Chris, that's a problem you don't yet have because you haven't written the book yet. So why don't we, <laughs> why don't we get you to the point where you have that problem and then you can address it. But um, until then, it just sounds like a reason not to, not to move forward on this project. I think it's inevitable. We're not omniscient. We can't possibly cover every single paper in the detail that, you know, the original authors would like to have it covered. It's just, right. you know, it's not possible, but hopefully being able to hit some of the high points and really explain things well. And as you pointed out, and we've discussed, there's, that's why there's not just one book about a thing, because, you know, the, the biology of aging itself is sort of like this too, which is that old story about the seven visually impaired 
philosophers who encounter an elephant. Yes. And they touch different parts of it and describe it in different ways. The one touching the tusks says that an elephant must be like a spear. And the one that is touching the flank thinks it must be like a wall. So really, you can learn about the elephant from the synthesis of all of their views. And aging is kind of like that, too. So it's good that there's more than one person writing about it. And it's okay that not everything gets into every book. Yeah. And the other part that's a little tricky is that, you know, at the very end of the book, I try to give the reader some idea of the landscape of biotech. But of course, that's moving super fast. And so inevitably, I'll miss something big there as well. Then that chapter of the book will go out of date a little bit faster than the rest of it even. Yeah, I think so. Because the underlying science will be, you know, that's constant. But, you know, what people do with the science is the thing that's going to change the fastest. Yeah. So uh, on the topic of there being other people looking at this and other efforts that are superficially similar to yours in writing this book, this isn't the first book on aging that was written by a prominent scientist from the field. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to tell us and you've brushed on this above, but I want to kind of distill it here as we come to a close. Given the existence of other books on this topic, what unique perspective does how we age add to the conversation? Well, I hope that it delves a little bit deeper, perhaps into the genetics and the cell biology that some of the, the books aim more to lay audience might. And as I mentioned, um, a lot of the science that has been done has been done in invertebrates, particularly C. elegans and Drosophila. And I hope to explain that a little bit more than might have otherwise been explained. And finally, the aspect of the fact that women do science and that a lot of it, you know, there's a, and I just want to mention that one more time that I think there's something interesting about fields. So you could argue that the aging field and the C. elegans field are relatively new in some ways. And that is where a lot, a lot of times women get into a field. When it's kind of new and they and so there's a little bit of this founder effect in the sense that at the time these fields were really getting rolling that's when women were starting their careers and so they were able to make a huge impact and i think that making sure that i've included work by women in my book might make it a little bit different from some of the other books that are out there but i can't say for sure because i to be honest i read a lot of novels i don't read a lot of <laughs> <laughs> a lot of science books because i read so much science you know, just from papers i don't really want to read a lot of other books but right and i think also if you're going to be launching on a project like this i would be and i was when i was working on this this project i referred to i was a little bit worried that i would be contaminated by somebody else's perspective on the topic so I didn't want to read too closely to the kind of writing that I was doing because I didn't want to be inadvertently subconsciously influenced by others. I wanted to have an individuated voice. Yeah, I guess I never worried about that. I'm pretty opinionated, so um, <laughs> I didn't worry about that too much. But I also think that everyone's, you know, their own experience colors how they go into a project. And so I have a very particular perspective from the work that we do. And I think that's part of it. And also teaching the class. You know, I really loved teaching the, this class to Princeton undergraduates, and they asked a lot of good questions, helped me really shape what we studied. And so I think that being able to explain how aging is regulated in that class kind of changed the perspective in a way that might not be, you know, that might not be the same voice as someone else from who works like in a different environment, maybe a medical school or something, how they might have approached the project also. That's really cool. And I, I look forward to keeping these ideas that you've just shared with us in mind as I do my own deep dive into the book after my copy arrives on or around November 14th. Once again, that is How We Age, The Science of Longevity by Professor Colleen Murphy, currently available for pre-order 
at your online retailer of choice. Colleen, thanks for being here today. Thanks so much, Chris. Appreciate it. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.